Alright folks, welcome back to Brojo Online. Got a very, very special guest today, Donald Robertson. Not only is he a practicing cognitive behavioral therapist, but he's also one of the leading figures and top knowledge men in the modern Stoicism community. He's just published a book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, about Marcus Aurelius, or using Marcus Aurelius as an example to demonstrate um, the philosophy of Stoicism. And I'm very honored to be speaking with him today, and he's going to answer some questions specifically about the Stoic views on emotions and anger, and how to bring Stoicism into your life in a practical way. Enjoy, I certainly did. Cheers. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Munro. I'm chuffed that you took the time to to have a chat. Uh, oh, no problem. Yeah, always happy to do these things. Yeah, yeah, um, they're a lot of fun, and yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to talking to you in particular because partly because your book's been such a hit with with my guys, but also because you and I have some pretty similar views, I think, on, on stoicism and the importance of applying it to life. And you've uh-huh. also got a completely different perspective as well with the the background CBT and everything. i got to say, Scottish accent's my favorite, by the way, so this is, <laughs> it's like a bonus. You know? Well, I'm kind of stuck with it now, yeah. It's changed a lot over the years. No one believes me, but my accent's very different from when I was uh, a young guy. I used to speak much more quickly. I had to slow it down a lot when I started to teach courses and stuff in England mm. and then I moved to Canada. Well, I emigrated um, about six years ago. So um, I was born in Scotland and then I moved to, to England and I worked in London mainly and then eventually I thought I fancied a change. I emigrated to Canada. I was living in Nova Scotia for a long time and eventually I decided to move to Toronto because it's the big city. There's a lot more going on here. And as soon as I arrived here, there were suddenly a lot more opportunities. Right? Within the first week that I got here, again, I got bombarded with things. So I think um, I'm probably going to end up settling here because right? it's been working out pretty well for me. There are probably more people interested in stoicism in, in this city in Toronto than anywhere else in the world, I think. It's oh, quite wow. strange. Interesting. I would have thought that would be uh, something Italian perhaps, but I guess it's yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, if what it's like in Rome and, uh, and in Italy, but also I travel to Athens a bit mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they're not really interested in it there. Strangely, that's kind of birthplace of stoicism um, because they're kind of jaded with it. You know, they told me that it's, it's kind of like uh, boring to them or something. And uh, so Athens, no interest, but Toronto... Why everyone here is interested in, in stoicism? They all read Ryan Holiday's books and Tim, mm. they're into Tim Ferriss and stuff like that here. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I've also been to Athens. And it took me so long just to find the the original Stoic porch there, um, yeah. hidden away behind the shops and all that. And yeah, I just couldn't find anything. It was weird. I, I expected it to be a shrine. Uh, yeah. Stoicism. Um, no. I, I literally found more about it in in Rome. Uh, not much, but more in Rome than I did in, in Athens, which surprised me. Yeah, we're having the conference in Athens actually in October. And uh, I'm hoping that we, we're going to have a few tours and stuff. I'm hoping we get a chance to show people. There's some locations that they wouldn't really tell you, or, you know, mm. um, are connected with Stoicism that are a little bit more obscure, but maybe better preserved. Like the Lyceum of Aristotle is a bit nicer. 
Um, and Chrysippus, this, uh, the third head of the Stoic uh, school, lectured there. Um, and Socrates used to teach at the Lyceum as well. It wasn't just Aristotle. So some other places that are kind of of interest, um, hoping we get to kind of do a little bit of a kind of custom tour. It's a bit more about Stoicism when we go there. But the Stoic itself is just like kind of covered in garbage, really, and like yeah. fenced in and graffiti and whatnot. Like it's, there's nothing much to see. A lot of um, the Plato's Academy is the worst. It's mm-hmm. in this park where there's drug addicts, you know, crackheads and stuff, and it's just rubble. It's all covered in graffiti. You know, it's the, it's the first kind of educational establishment in the West. You know, it's iconic, and it's it's in this really run-down area just full of garbage and stuff. It's, it's crazy. You'd think someone would invest in it and build a conference center there or something like that, and, you know, I'm sure people would want to go and attend conferences and events at the location of the Platonic Academy, but they've never developed it for some reason. Well, I remember thinking actually a kind of tragic irony when I saw the the stoa itself and just how run down and basically you have to be told what it is because there's no recognizable features. But I thought, well, that's actually right in line with the philosophy of kind of everything going to dust and everything being forgotten. It's kind of like it's allowed itself to go to dust, but yeah. people like yourself, um, the the message carries on. Yeah, I've, I think... I, Guys like Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, there's a whole bunch of them now that, uh, Darren Brown, all these big names that yeah. reference Stoicism a lot and seem to get a, well, this is actually what I wanted to talk to you about a lot, which is the practical application. There's a lot of yeah. Stoicism fans, but there's, I think when I meet them or I chat with them online, I get a sense of lip service without living by it. Yeah. I really want to talk to you a bit about your, your thoughts and, and feelings about transitioning from thinking about stoicism to behaving in a stoic way. Well, it's a funny thing, you know, because from my point of view, that there are a lot of psychological exercises and practices described by the Stoics. That's what attracted me to them. And there are a lot of good books in stoicism and a lot of quite down-to-earth practical guides. But it, it struck me recently when I was reviewing some of them that actually most of them don't really mention very many of the, the techniques that the Stoics describe using. Um, you know, like I wouldn't pick up it, pick up any of the kind of modern books. Like they, they kind of talk about the practical side of stoicism, but the things that I would associate with it, like uh, you know, the view from above and role modeling, and you know, the whole bunch of actual techniques that are similar to ones that we use in CBT, are, are missing completely mm-hmm. from most of those books. Um, so it's kind of strange in a way. But when we run the Stoic Week event, we, you know, for modern Stoicism, we uh, we try to, to teach people about some of the practical exercises. And the first book I wrote in Stoicism, I've just done a revised second edition of that. It's called The Philosophy of CBT. And uh, it had a list of, uh, I went back and counted them. I think there were about 18 or 19 separate psychological techniques that I kind of identified when I, I did the sort of survey that I wrote in that book. Um, and of those, you'll be lucky if people mention maybe one or two of them when they when they write about the subject. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, we I, I like to go into a little bit more detail talking about some of the practices, definitely, because it's good for people to learn about those. Absolutely. I mean, that's what appealed to me. My first reading Stoicism was actually Ryan Holiday stuff, but then I read Letters to Seneca and then... Most importantly, I read Meditations, um, and that was the one where things really clicked for me. 
because you know you're reading like this guy's journal basically it felt like and, yeah. and you know that's where I was able to help for me it was especially translating the management of stress into practical behavior um, really came through that before we go too deep into stoicism I actually want to I want to learn a little bit more about you personally um, and sort of get the run up to you becoming this kind of stoic file um, First off, I mean, let's assume that people listening for some reason have not heard of you or your work. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do in, at, at this present moment uh, in terms of your work and how that relates to stoicism. Let's start there, maybe, and we'll work backwards. Okay. So by profession, I'm a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and uh, for a long time I ran a training school for psychotherapists in the UK, and I was uh, um, a you know, I did workshops, as my personal development workshops, corporate training, uh, clinical supervision, but mainly a CBT practitioner, and uh, I wrote books about that, lectured at conferences and whatnot. That's my career. And now, since emigrating to Canada, I really am I'm, I'm more, um, spend more of my time writing books and doing stuff that's associated with that. And uh, I guess delivering training courses. I still do a little bit of coaching and stuff, but not. I don't have a, a clinical practice in Canada at the moment. Um, so uh, that's kind of where I'm at. It's all everything I do revolves around stoicism. I got into stoicism. Uh, it's like twenty or twenty-five years ago, or something like that. Pretty much, I, I studied philosophy at university when I was a young guy. So I went to school, and then I went to university. I did a degree in philosophy. And uh, I was trying to find something that would combine my interest in meditation, psychotherapy, and philosophy. And I couldn't really find something. I began looking at existentialism because it was related to psychoanalytic therapy. But it didn't really work for me. I didn't really like it as an approach. I did my master's degree at Sheffield in philosophy and psychotherapy. So the integration of these two things is, is something that I'd studied uh, in, in, in my master's, did my dissertation on. Um, and... Uh, then I stumbled across Stoicism, basically. You don't normally study the Stoics when you're doing an undergraduate degree in philosophy. It's one of the few major schools of philosophy that's left off the undergraduate curriculum, weirdly. So, um, and that's probably why the Stoics aren't kind of more, even more famous than they are today. So uh, I was reading a guy called Pierre Hadot. I read his book about Plotinus, the Neoplatonist philosopher. Because um, I was kind of interested also in religious texts, I was interested in Gnostic Christianity and early Christianity because I saw that they had contemplative practices that I was int intrigued by. And uh, I read Hado and Plotinus and uh, I got this idea that I should look at his other books because they looked at Hellenistic philosophy and ancient philosophy more widely. And I realized that there were more practical techniques in the Stoic literature. So Hado has books called What is Philosophy? Uh, philosophy, sorry, What is Ancient Philosophy? Philosophy is a Way of Life. And The Inner Citadel, which is uh, his analysis of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, a scholarly academic text. He was a kind of historian of ideas. And uh, from reading those books, it really gave me a kind of deep 
dive into Stoicism, and I, I realized, uh, I read the Stoics, like, and uh, I realized that they combined my interests. So um, Stoicism had a kind of approach to therapy, and uh, it had a bunch of contemplative meditation practices, and it was a, a Socratic philosophy. So it brought together, I felt like these things that I was trying to kind of weld together, they weren't really fitting, just suddenly all boom, clicked into place really neatly. And that was about 25-ish years ago. Um, I need to do the math on that. But it was about 25 years ago, and I kind of haven't looked back since. You know, I still feel like there was something that was stressing me out for years and years and years, and then it was resolved. It just went, and it all came together, and it still all clicked neatly together for me. And the, the reason it's relevant to therapy is that um, cognitive behavioral therapy, for those who don't know, is the leading evidence-based branch of modern psychotherapy. And CBT was uh, originally inspired by Stoicism. So in particular, Albert Ellis, who's one of the precursors or pioneers of CBT in the 1950s, had read the Stoics, uh, quoted them fairly frequently. And in particular, he quoted the saying of Epictetus, it's not things that upset us, but our judgments, our our opinions about things. That's passage five in the Enchiridion, incidentally. That's probably the most famous quote from the whole corpus of stoic literature that survives today every cbt practitioner pretty much should know that quote it was certainly in the past in previous decades it was very famous ellis taught it to all of his clients because it encapsulates what we call the cognitive theory of emotion which is the idea that our emotions are largely if not exclusively determined by underlying beliefs and if that's true, then it means you can identify those beliefs, articulate them, you can change them, you can identify alternate beliefs and replace them, and that means you can change your emotions. So beliefs are the cause and the cure, as we sometimes say, of emotional disturbance to some extent, and we, it gives us something we can work on. And so that's the basis, really, of cognitive approaches to therapy. Cognitive meaning it has to do with thinking or with beliefs. And, uh, and then CBT validated that. There's a, there are mountains of research now on CBT that show that working on beliefs in that way does uh, generally change emotions and it's an effective means of therapy. So Stoicism and CBT have this kind of overlap or shared premise and so they also have many kind of techniques that end up being in common either because the people like Ellis kind of read them and were influenced by some of the practical techniques or because they're starting from the same premise so they inevitably arrive at similar conclusions in certain respects. So that's kind of what I ended up doing. It became my niche to talk to people about the relationship between philosophy and psychotherapy. And uh, I used to teach therapists about that and talk about it at conferences and write about it. And uh, and so I've written six books now on philosophy and psychotherapy. At the moment, what I'm just beginning to work on is a graphic novel. I kind of stumbled into doing that. So I'm doing a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius and uh, his life and how he used stoicism to to cope with some of the challenges that he faced during his lifetime. Yeah, do you draw those comics, by the way? No, I have an illustrator that does them for me. I write the scripts. Like Stan Lee, you know, he wrote the scripts and stuff for the the comic, uh, for the Marvel comics, and then the illustrators would do do the panels and stuff. So I have to plan the dialogue and the plot and what's going to go in each panel, and then an illustrator does does the pictures. I love it. I love the idea of it because it's a uh, it's a medium that there's some people who won't read through letters to Seneca, but they'll read a comic. Like I'm actually uh, in that category. I like the visuals, so I think that's such a great idea. I'm hoping. I think with stoicism, you know, it's an inherently valuable. I used to say it's kind of like introducing people to Shakespeare, right? 
Like I feel that's how I feel. Like a big part of my job is kind of easy. You know, I'm kind of encouraging people. So I just wrote a book about Marcus Aurelius, right? I think of myself as encouraging people to go read Marcus Aurelius. It would be like as if people had never heard of Hamlet and they were interested in English literature. And I said, you should go and check this out. Here's a couple of quotes from it and stuff. Like go and, you know, helping them to get into it and go and read it. And it, you know, I feel like I can't fail because I think when they do read it, like most people go, well, this is a classic. You know, it's a masterpiece. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius, or the discourses or the letters of Seneca. Um, and I think by doing the graphic novel, I'm hoping it's another way to reach a different audience, maybe a young, slightly younger audience. You know, maybe people that wouldn't pick up these classics and read them uh, in the in the, the traditional format. So, but I think when they when they're given access to it, they'll relate to the ideas. Same as everyone else does. I couldn't agree more. I've currently got a an eighteen year old client, the youngest uh, coaching client I've ever had, and I've been introducing him to this stuff, and he's more than ready for it. Uh, yeah, he really. It's mind boggling to him the idea that maybe his thoughts aren't the full truth about the matter, and that they uh-huh. can be examined. And I found stoicism because I've dabbled in so many different uh, belief systems and, and stuff trying to find what works for me and stoicism was just so sticky for me because mm-hmm. it just it just had answers for every question I had about it whereas some of the others I'd end up in a dead end you can tell that this is a philosophy where <laughs> like like the name implies guys have sat around talking this to death to poke holes in it and found you know resolutions to all the the shortcomings, and then thousands of years later we get that kind of finished product. Well, the never-ending yeah. adaptation of it. Yeah. Well, the Stoic school lasted for just under five hundred years, right? So Freudian psychoanalysis, people think of as a big kind of cultural thing, it lasted about half a century. You know, it's trivial by comparison. Mm. Uh, you know, Marxism, you know, less a hundred years or whatever. Like so Stoicism in its heyday. From Zeno founding the school why, in uh, three, about 300 BC to Marcus Aurelius' death about 180 AD, it's almost five, it's just under 500 years. And then, uh, and then it kind of got superseded by Christianity and Neoplatonism. Um, and in that period of time, you know, they, people were discussing it like all around the known world. Um, we know the names of at least about 60 or 70 Stoic philosophers. I'm sure there were many, many, many more. Um, and, you know, it evolved. Like, we have today maybe 1% of the original Stoic literature surviving. Uh, but what we have is kind of curated by history. So we get probably the best, some of the best stuff, right? We get books that people, that, you know, wanted to cling on to for 2,000 years, like, because they thought there was something special about them. And so history curates things for us in this way. You know, what, what survives is the kind of cream of the crop, in a sense. We get the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, because people saw it, there's something special about that book and the discourses uh, uh, of uh, Epictetus, the letters of Seneca. But Stoicism is even bigger than that. You know, even a lot of people that are into Stoicism today don't realise in the ancient world, Stoicism was seen as a Socratic philosophy. And to put it very, very crudely, you know, what we get in the surviving Stoic texts is almost like a kind of bullet point version of Mm. the Socratic dialogues. So in Socrates, you get this much more open-ended discussion, much more kind of fine-grained argumentation, you know, arriving at generally similar conclusions um, that the Stoics then pick up and hammer into shape as an actual work 
remarkable philosophy of life. Um, and so with Socrates, you're left thinking about, you know, what I, that, you know, we've really raised some interesting questions. We've argued this very thoroughly, but where do we actually go with it? And then you have the Stoics going, this is what, this is how we put it into practice if we're actually going to try and live in accord with this philosophy. And I think if you join Socrates and the Stoics together, you kind of get the best of both. You know, you get a clear description of how to live according to philosophy, but you also get, if you want to, a, like, a much more in-depth discussion of the underlying ideas and arguments trying to justify some of these ways of looking at life. Spend your, spend your lifetime studying that stuff. Um, there's enough literature there to keep you going a lifetime. Yeah, and uh, I think, judging by your enthusiasm for it, uh, probably will be a lifetime for you and uh, be a well-used one at that. I've got, I got a, I actually, I don't usually write things down for these, but I've got a couple of things that I wanted to run past you. They're kind of a, well, one in particular dilemma I, I, I come across trying to practice stoicism that I thought you might be able to help me resolve. I think it's a common one and it's around anger. Uh-huh. I think it's, it's probably a misinterpretation, but it's easy enough to interpret a lot of stoic texts as kind of being negative about the emotion of anger. Like if you're angry, you've somehow, sort of philosophically failed in a way and you need to fix that. Um, whereas I've always had the perspective that anger used in the right way is helpful. It can be courage, passion, assertiveness, things like that. What's your take on what the Stoics were talking about when it came to anger? Well, I guess there's a couple of kind of preliminary things that I'd say. One of them is as soon as we start talking about emotions, we run into problems of translation. So we have to kind of mm. be a little bit careful um, because you know you can you, there are obviously you know, how many different words in English do we have for different nuances of emotion, right? Irritability, annoyance, anger, frustration, you know, vengeance, whatever. There's like a lot of an, a, a different emotional language we use to describe subtly different things, um, and you get that in ancient Greek as well. But their words don't necessarily map one to one onto ours. So often they make distinctions that we don't bother making. Um, or they fail to distinguish that we things that we would normally distinguish. For example, even their word passion, um, pathos, it combines the idea of suffering, it encompasses desires, and it includes what we would think of as emotions. So it's kind of, you know, it, it doesn't easily translate into a single word in English. So that's the first thing I'd say. Um, second thing that I'd say as a kind of preamble is that the Stoics were particularly interested in anger. Um, in modern psychotherapy, we're mainly interested in anxiety and depression. Not exclusively, of course, but those are the two main things we tend to focus on. They mainly focus on anger. We have an entire book by Seneca on anger that survives today. Also, controversial, I would say The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, to a large extent, um, is a book that's concerned with anger. Mm. And uh, that's one of the main uh, emotional themes of the book is his uh, attempts to overcome his own inner struggle with feelings of anger. I don't think that's necessarily obvious at first, but I think if you look at that book closely, that's a major theme that runs through it. The first was, sentence. Yeah, that was my take as well. It seemed to be yeah. a book on how he was trying to not get pissed off about stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. All the stuff about empathy and kinship with your fellow man, that's kind of the flip side of him also talking about struggling to cope with his anger. And he says that he struggled with anger. It was a difficult thing for him. He tells us that. Um, but he, the first sentence of the meditations is that his uh, grandfather, um, who was also called Marcus Annius Verus, um, he said what he learned from him was nobility of character and freedom from anger. So the opening sentence is him saying, you know, 
one of the main things I learned in life was, you know, these guys that raised me, that brought me up after the death of his own father, showed me like, how to overcome anger. And there's a, there's a lot of kind of historical nuance to that. For example, the person he doesn't mention in one of the meditations is Hadrian, who's notable by his absence, who is Marcus's adoptive grandfather. And, uh, you know, he Marcus clearly doesn't think of him as a role model. And Hadrian was notorious for having a bad temper. There's a, an interesting story, as this is a slight aside, but I'll tell you just because it's a nice little anecdote. Uh, Hadrian lost his temper once. Galen, uh, Marx Aurelius' physician, tells us a story, if I remember rightly, that's where it comes from. So Hadrian, who, who was kind of a, a genius and an incredible guy, but mercurial, changeable, unpredictable, uh, hot-tempered, he he lost his temper once at court and took uh, an iron writing stylus uh, and stabbed a slave in the eye with it. And people were horrified by this. Um and then the next day, Hadrian had kind of calmed down and he realized everyone was kind of looking at him like he was some kind of psychopath or something. And so he kind of felt guilty about it. And he went to the guy and said, listen, I'm, I'm sorry about that. You know, I, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, is there anything I can do to make it up to you? And the guy said, listen, all that I really want is to get my eye back, which is the one thing that he couldn't give him, even though he was the, the most powerful man in the known world. And so the moral of that story is that sometimes when we give way to anger, we do things uh, that might even be irreparable, right, if we're not careful. The Stoics used to call anger temporary madness, right, and that's one of the reasons they're very wary of it. And actually, that was a very prescient thing for them to say because we know from modern research and uh, emotions that strong emotions are often accompanied by cognitive distortion. So it changes the way we think about things. People don't reason in the same way when they're emotional. In particular, when people are angry, they tend to understand and interpret events in a biased way, in a, in a different way. So that's one reason for being wary about anger. There is a sense in which it's a kind of madness or it kind of distorts our, our way of solving problems, interpreting events and skews our thinking. And that might not be helpful in certain situations. The Stoics thought it's better if we can kind of remain calm and try and understand what's going on and plan how we're going to respond to things. Although anger could be used in some ways to motivate us. The other thing I'd say is the Stoics distinguish between three types of emotion, good, bad and indifferent emotions. So we, people often, sometimes, very often, even some leading academics kind of make the error of thinking that the Stoics are saying that we should extirpate or remove, uproot all emotions. And that is clearly not what they're saying. Um, it's clear that Marcus hadn't eliminated all of his emotions. He was an incredibly affectionate and friendly guy. We know that from his private correspondence and from the histories that are written about him. You know, we can see the Stoics refer frequently um, to emotions of love and friendship, um, empathy, um, even joy in certain aspects of life, you know, feelings of religious piety and so on. There's a whole repertoire of healthy or positive emotions that they talk about continually. So if we take a step back, you know, it's kind of obvious they're not saying that they should be like robots. So it's, mm. it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre that some people had thought that that's what they might be saying because a child could see that that's not what they're doing. Why, like, you know, it's, it's clearly not the case. But they, um, they, if you look closely, they distinguish basically between good, bad, and indifferent emotions. So the bad emotions we're familiar with, and they classify them. And anger, or a type of anger, is one of them. And the Stoics say that the bad emotions are unnatural, right? which implies that they're unhealthy, they're excessive, and they're irrational. 
So they exceed certain bounds. They kind of go too far. Chris Ipis, who is a long-distance runner, compares them uh, to somebody who's running so fast that he can't stop like, or change direction. Mm. Like if, some, if something is in his path, you know, like if somebody's jogging too fast or running and there's a car comes out in front of them that they can't, you know, it's, they're going too fast to be able to stop in time. And so we lose, we're kind of losing control by allowing ourselves to be swept away or indulge in these things too much. Um, and Chris Ipis is saying that's really what we have to be careful about. Like, although the seeds of that might exist in kind of uh, milder emotions, we've got to be careful they don't escalate. Um, so then there's the indifferent emotions, which the Stoics call propathei, or proto-passions, or first movements, uh, Seneca calls them. And these are shared with animals. So there are kind of instinctive, reflex-like, automatic emotions. And, you know, the, the point for that is, like, for example, Seneca says it's okay if someone's bereaved, it's natural that they would mourn. But the problem is if it turns into kind of clinical depression, if it goes on too long. So there is a kind of limit even to mourning beyond which maybe it becomes pathological or depressive. Um, and even animals, certain animals might mourn the loss of their young, for example. So for the story, so these kind of instinctive emotional reactions that we don't have a lot of control over and we need to learn to live with and accept, but they tend to burn out after a while. There's a natural limit to them. So the Stoics would say even the wise man would be startled if there's an earthquake or something, or somebody suddenly shocks him with some bad news, like he, or he's caught in a storm at sea. These are the examples they use. He'll turn white and he'll shake just like anyone else, but he won't dwell on it afterwards. He won't ruminate about it. He won't exaggerate it in his mind. That's the difference. Mm. And that's central to modern cognitive models of emotion. So there's the initial automatic flush of emotion, and then there's the voluntary response that we have. And the, the reason that's important is that if we try to suppress or struggle against or avoid the automatic emotion, that can be quite toxic. Like, um, because we're trying to do something, we're trying to do the impossible in a sense. We're trying to struggle against something that isn't actually under our control. So for Stoics, the propithei are classed as indifference. And that means that they're not bad. And that means that we shouldn't be struggling against them. It means that we should kind of accept them as the Stoics say, as inevitable, natural, and indifferent. And we should allow them to kind of run their course, as it were. And the same is with an animal. It might feel shock or, or sadness or something, but it would run a natural course. That's my interpretation of what the, the Stoics mean by that. And then there's healthy emotions, which are, the Stoics are defined fairly narrowly, to be fair. And these are... Uh, you know, makes basically an aversion to vice or pleasure in virtue, our own or, or in other people. So what it boils down to is taking pleasure, having an aversion to the right things in life, the most important things in life, um, and kind of focusing on that, rather than kind of taking enjoyment in unhealthy things or being afraid of things that aren't necessarily uh, like threatening or dangerous to us. So that's the kind of this more nuanced model of emotion that they have. Now, anger, the Stoics give cognitive models of the emotions, right, which is way ahead of its time. Like, uh, it, we didn't do that in modern therapy until, like, the 1950s, 1960s, right? And it's the basis of modern psychotherapy. So we'd say um, the cognitive model of anxiety, for example, says, to put it very crudely, uh, there are several models, but one of the earliest models introduced by Beck based on research by a guy called Richard Lazarus, incidentally, 
says that um, when people are afraid or anxious, it's as if they're saying to themselves two things. Something bad is going to happen and I won't be able to cope with it. Mm. That's a pretty good formula for understanding worry and anxiety. It tends to be these two elements. So an inflated appraisal of threat, something catastrophic, I should say, is going to happen. Something really bad is going to happen. Um, and it's future focused usually. And number two, I won't be able to cope with it. So like a, a, a poor like uh, appraisal of coping ability. And the Stoics have a very similar model of anxiety. Now, the model of anger. For Stoics, anger isn't an emotion. Uh, it's a desire, technically, mm. interestingly. And it's the desire to get revenge or to harm another person, often to be harmed, basically. So it's very closely related to the concept of vengeance. Now, the problem with that, actually, to really get to the problem of, of anger for Stoics, you, you have to go somewhere slightly different. You have to go back in time a bit and look at the first book of Plato's Republic, where Socrates spells out uh, an argument about the nature of justice. And this is really the basis of the Stoics' argument against anger. So Socrates says, look, there's a traditional Greek theory of justice that says uh, justice consists in helping your friends and harming your enemies. Mm. And Socrates goes into a kind of very involved argument about this. But to cut a long story short, his implied, anyway, his conclusion basically is he thinks justice consists in helping your friends and helping your enemies, like, which is a radical idea um, and seems quite shocking to, to some of the people that he's talking to. It seems very counterintuitive and quite bizarre to them. But he follows an argument for it. And his argument, to paraphrase it a lot, like, um, is essentially that if you believe that the most important thing in life is wisdom rather than money or reputation or whatever, you wouldn't want to help your enemies by giving them a load of money or by you know boosting their reputation or something necessarily. But if you're a philosopher and you really believe that wisdom is the most important thing in life, moral wisdom, practical wisdom and virtue, then to help someone fundamentally would mean helping them to achieve wisdom, to enlighten them, right? So Socrates, for Socrates to really help someone is to enlighten them. And so the wise man doesn't try and make his enemies more ignorant and vicious because that would just backfire on him. Mm. Like it's got to do with his definition of what help and harm mean. Like so, the goal of the wise man is to enlighten his enemies, like and to improve them, to make them more friendly and less vicious. Like and in a sense, you could say that, that for the wise man, for the philosopher, um, you know, part of his goal is to turn his enemies into friends. You can see that in Marcus Aurelius. You know, he's constantly talking about his sense of kinship even with enemies and trying to educate people. He gives an example once of what he would say to someone who's angry with him. And this is passage, book 11, passage 18 in the Meditations. He lists 10 anger man management strategies in there. Yeah, that will tell you, that alone will tell you how important the subject is to him. He goes mm. through 10 separate strategies for coping with anger. That's a lot. A lot of modern psychotherapists would struggle to name off the top of their head 10 distinct strategies. But he's got these memorised. And he talks about them repeatedly throughout that book over and over and over again. He calls them 10 gifts from Apollo, who incidentally was the god of healing. And Apollo is also the god that spoke through the Oracle of Delphi. So Apollo, in a sense, invented Socratic philosophy because it was uh, Apollo who, speaking through his oracle, said no man is wiser than Socrates. And Socrates says in Plato's Apology that he's doing philosophy because he's on a mission from the god Apollo had given him this riddle to solve. Like, how could it be that nobody is wiser than him? So he went around mm -hmm. questioning everybody, invented his philosophical method. So Marcus, when he's discussing these anger management techniques, says, 
at the end of it, you know, what if somebody's being obstinate and angry with me? And incidentally, the language he uses, he could be referring to anyone. He says, my son, they may be speaking figuratively, although it's possible he's actually thinking of Commodus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was probably his only surviving son at the time that he wrote that. Right. So he says, listen, my son, um, we're not meant for this. And he's alluding to a Stoic argument there, which he's mentioned earlier in the same passage. The Stoics believed that human beings are fundamentally both rational and social beings. And again, in Socrates, you get whole arguments trying to support this view. Um, we're capable of reason, so we should maximize that potential. And that would mean becoming wise. And we're capable of living in communities and forming families and societies. The Stoics, and the, right back to the time of Socrates, philosophers had argued, look, humans are, the, are, are weak compared to other animals. We don't have claws. We don't have sharp teeth. We don't have shells to protect us. You know, like we humans survive not by using their claws and so like, but by bonding together and forming communities and by working in collaboration with one another. Like that's what that's what allows human beings to flourish. Like we're inherently social beings. And so they believe like this is a gift from Zeus. We have an obligation to maximize like this ability to live uh, in harmony together. And so the Stoics said, look, you know, part, part of our destiny, like our, our goal in life is to become enlightened and live in harmony with the other human beings around us to the best of our ability. We have to do that with what the Stoics call the reserve clause because we don't control other people. So the Stoics would say, I want this person to become enlightened and to become my friend and for us to be able to live in harmony together, fate permitting. Mm. Like, so I'll, I'll work on this to the best of my ability while accepting that it might go the opposite way like, because I can't that's something that's outside of my control, but nevertheless, that I can try to work on. So it's pursued with the reserve clause, as the Stoics would say. So Marcus said, look, some are not meant for this, like, which means nature intended us not to fight, but to work together. Um, and he said, you, you'll not harm me, you're just hurting yourself, which is another very recurring, very common Stoic argument. Um, it says like, when people get angry, the Stoics believe the cognitive model of anger in Stoicism is it's a desire to harm the other person, to take revenge on them, because we believe that they've transgressed a rule and they deserve to be punished. Like, the Stoics believe that that explains a lot of anger anyway, perhaps not all anger. Um, but the, the Stoics thought the desire to harm other people is fundamentally wrong. You know, even our enemies, we should desire to help them. Because if we understand what's really good and bad for human beings, the most important thing in life would be wisdom. The worst thing would be ignorance. Therefore, we should want our enemies to become wise, not ignorant. Like that doesn't do anybody any good. Like, and if they become wise, they'll cease to be our enemies potentially. You know, they become enlightened and would be able to work together. So he says that like, you're harming yourself. Your desire to harm me is just destroying your own character, and that's the worst type of harm there is. You know, it doesn't matter what you try to do to me externally to damage my reputation, my body, my property. That's trivial compared to the harm that you're doing to your own character by indulging in this negative emotion um, and, you know, what the Stoics would see as an irrational philosophy of life. So that's the attitude that he envisages himself adopting to someone who's angry, that he thinks he should basically teach them about Stoicism, enlighten them or educate them in the same principles that he's internalised himself in order to overcome his own anger. And uh, the main ones that he focuses are on teaching them, look, you know, we're inherently social animals, so we should try and do our best with that. And the second one, that although you think you're harming me, you're actually doing more harm to yourself. Right? 
you know, you should realize it by indulging in this, you're damaging your own character and blinding yourself. You're kind of indulging in this sort of temporary madness. So then the, the other philosophy would be that you might compare this to would be Aristotle's, who Aristotle said that, you know, anger might be good in moderation. And, uh, you know, possibly anger could help to motivate us in some situations. And the Stoics would say, well, that's good as long as it's not based on the belief that you someone deserves to be harmed. Mm-hmm. Because they say if you dig deep into it for the same reason that Socrates did, that, that's a faulty assumption. You know, I, either you're assuming that the most important thing is external stuff and you're kind of caught up in that, where Stoics think that's trivial, so they wouldn't have a strong emotion about taking away someone's property or giving them a black eye or something like that. Um, they'd be more interested in how someone's character is affected. That's where true help or harm lies. Um, or you'd be thinking of harming their character, which would mean making them a worse person. Socrates really pursues that argument. And he says, that's crazy. Like, Why would you make your, want to make your enemies into even worse people than they are already? That's you know clearly counterproductive. That just harms you. You know, if you make, you're embedded in society. If you if you make the people around you worse, then you make your own life worse. Like, you should be trying to improve your enemies, not worsen them. Like, so again, you know, like, think about that as a tangle that you're now tied in. Like, you want to hurt your enemies? Does that not mean making them worse? If you make them worse, then you have to live with them. Like, why would you want to make your enemies even worse and make your own life worse? You should be trying to improve your enemies. So like, Socrates really tied his friends in knots with this discussion. He has this argument with a sophist called Thrasymachus. His name means fierce fighter, and he gets really angry about it. Like, so they, they, you can see them having a real argument in the, in the Republic about that. But the Stoics know these arguments. Like, and, you know, centuries later, they're trying to kind of work out the practical implications of living in the way that Socrates is described. That's some of the things they would say. I would say as a psychotherapist... You know, we don't kind of take a hard and fast philosophical line about this with clients normally. Um, But generally speaking, you know, I don't think there's anything that anger can do for people that reason and uh, positive emotions, uh, you know, the desire to better yourself, the desire to to help other people can't do better. Um, You know, there may be some exceptions to that, but the problem with anger is if in order to get your blood pressure up and in order to get yourself out, in the be- out of bed in the morning, you need to focus on revenge or something like that, you've got to ask yourself, what, it, what does revenge really mean to you? You know, what are your priorities in life? You know, what's your definition of what it means to harm another person? You know, and is that, is that itself based on some kind of slightly wonky values? That, uh, that clarifies something. I'm going to give you an example in a second. Uh, I want to hear your take on it. It's something I did recently where I wanted to figure out, is that anger or is that something else? Because it seemed to be done for a good reason that I was feeling the anger. But before, I, I, you just uh, helped me click with an insight. I, I used to work in the criminal justice system. I used to work as a probation officer. And the reason I'm now self-employed as a coach is because of certain disillusion I had with the whole corrections thing, which now... Very interesting you bring that up. Yeah. By the way, let me just interject. The Stoics Stoics actually believed that, um, that, you know, the criminal justice system should be there for uh, reparation and rehabilitation uh, of criminals rather than for for revenge or punishment. They thought that made no sense. Um, You know, they thought they should be there to try and improve people, not just to kind of, you know... Punish them for the sake of it, as it were. 
Well, that was the thing that stood out to me. You know, I'd go to court and, and I'd hear the reasoning for sentences and stuff. And so often the reasoning was about punishment. It was about setting an example. It was about making sure you endured as much pain as you caused. Uh, and rehabilitation was like, if there's time, we'll tack that on the side. And it didn't make sense to me. There was a couple of statistics. One is you put someone in prison, they become about twice as likely to commit further crimes than if you didn't. And the other one was their children become four times more likely to become criminals than other children. And I was like, we're shooting ourselves in the foot with this. I mean, it would be yeah. less damaging if we didn't put anyone in prison. That's how bad prison is. Yeah, isn't it crazy that this argument was made two and a half thousand years ago? Like, it's the you know the, the that's exactly the way that Socrates would think is like surely this is back to front. You know where, you know if you make people if you make your enemies worse, you're just making your own society worse, and you're part of that society. Like you're really just damaging yourself. Absolutely, and, and we might uh, we might stray a little bit into why it is we've ended up with a system where we insist on kind of shooting ourselves. But I want to come back to the example because I really want to hear your opinion on this. So what it was, uh, I, I got married recently, very recently, and we were doing the planning and it was that stress week before the wedding where everything's uh, going to Congratulations. Off. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we're going through that, that week where everything goes wrong and everything's a hassle. And there was this dude who wanted to bring his dogs to the wedding. Just, Big ass dogs. He wanted to bring them to the right. wedding. Just why is beyond me. But he was—he's a kind of sneaky guy, and he was trying to sneak around behind our back to get these dogs into the wedding, telling right. us. Uh, and somehow the news got through to us. One of the venues told us or something. And it was a day my my girl, who was doing most of the planning, to be fair, was stressed out to the max. And then she found out this guy's like doing this dog sabotage thing. And. I was like, I've got to take care of my girl here. She does not need this. And I was angry. I, was, I wasn't I was enraged. I wouldn't say that or outraged, uh, however you want to put it. I wasn't losing control or fuming, swearing, shouting. I was just like this kind of, I call it cold anger. I'm like, this shit needs to be sorted type anger. And I called the guy and I was very kind of, I call it ruthless, just very assertive with him. I'm like, hi, man, look, no dogs, end of story. And the anger kind of empowered me to do the conversation, which I knew would be uncomfortable because he's a talker and he would have been like throwing guilt trips at me and stuff, which he did. And I got off the end of that call. I'm like, I'm pretty sure anger helped me with that call more than say happiness would have. Uh What are your thoughts? Well, you know, see, this is a peculiar thing about the kind of cognitive model that the Stoics have, or intellectual model, it's it's sometimes called uh, in philosophy, that... You know, for them, really, whether we call something anger or not, we we think of it more to do with the sensations and the feelings that we have, perhaps. Um, but for the Stoics, it's more a question of what the underlying belief is, what's, mm. what's the attitude. It doesn't matter if your face is turning red and your blood pressure is going up. That could be, you could label that in different ways, but what really matters is the attitude underlying it. And so for them, anger is the desire to harm the other person. Mm. Like, so, it, you know, if you're going into it with a desire to harm the other person, which I don't think you, it sounds like you did, it sounded like actually more like you wanted to kind of fix the situation and, and maybe kind of ed- perhaps educate this guy a little bit about your reasons for... Um, That's what it felt like to me at the time, definitely. Yeah, then, you know, arguably, if that genuinely was your, your, your predominant motivation, then the Stoics would probably say it wasn't what they mean by anger. 
Um, and Seneca at one point, if I remember rightly, says like, sometimes there are these propathei, there are these kind of sensations like, you know, the blood pressure rising and so on that, that aren't really worthy of the name anger per se. Um, they might accompany other attitudes or feelings, but they, um, even the sage might experience those in some situations, but nevertheless, he might be acting wisely. Do those feelings help? us to to like but you know solve certain problems that's not really a question that the stoics address as far as i know i think that's open for, uh, that's a kind of open question i i believe that you can probably do the same thing without having to raise your blood pressure you know or, or having to have some of those other sensations but you know i in a way perhaps that's actually a trivial question mm. you know the, the main thing the main thing would be you know however you get there like what really matters to the Stoics is just that the attitude that's motivating you is one that's uh, seeks to to do, to pursue the good for yourself and for other people. That's the bottom line. Um, it's about pursue the pursuit of wisdom and enlightening other people. If it's anything else, then it's potentially a vice. Like, but you know, you have to kind of try and determine if that's your main motivation. In that situation, it sounds like you're more, you, you, what you're doing there is, you know, not that far removed from Marcus, you know, saying that he's addressing this guy and saying, listen, my son, we're not meant for this. You're just harming yourself. You know, it sounds more like you're just educating somebody and setting a boundary. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in a way, it's almost academic, the discussion about anger, because one thing I really agree with is most people do not manage their anger well. And that's just, it's either what I see is either that kind of inner anger. I remember one person once described depression to me as rage turned inwards. And I thought that was just such a beautiful description of it. Um, and then you get, of course, rage turned outwards, which especially in outrage culture that we seem to be in these days, you can just see people who just, they're just drowning in anger. They're, they're not even questioning it. They're not thinking it through. They're not pausing. They're just reacting and, so I think that kind of fine-tuning of, is this anger good or bad? Most people aren't there yet anyway. They're, they're mostly just drowning, it seems mostly to me. People, mostly people are looking at the kind of sensations. They're not really digging into what the underlying belief or attitude is that informs the emotion, which is what we really have to do in cognitive therapy. And what the, what the Stoics are at, I mean, maybe that's another reason that people sometimes struggle to understand the Stoics, that they're interested in a different, a different aspect of emotion from the aspect we normally talk about. Right. They're, they're interested in the belief that underlies it. That's the key thing. Like That's what they want to change and question and evaluate, Like you know, not the feelings. And so sometimes when people think the Stoics are talking about being unemotional or, or kind of repressing or suppressing feelings, they couldn't care less about that. Like They don't care if your heart's beating fast or, you know, like, or trying to kind of block that or conceal it or whatever. It, it's at a cognitive level they're interested. They want to know what you're thinking. What are the beliefs and values that underlie these emotions? That's what really matters. The rest is kind of just a byproduct. It's a sort of side effect. That's not really the heart. The heart of the issue is the underlying value judgment that you're making and whether that's rational or, or irrational, healthy or, or unhealthy. You just reminded me of something else I wanted to say. Though. And in modern society, you know, I do think there is a lot of anger. There's a failure of empathy. Um, you know, maybe these things recur throughout history, but, you know, in some ways I kind of I feel that even over the last 10, 20 years, we've seen more uh, breakdown in communication and, and misunderstanding and enmity between people in certain respects. And, you know, one of the things that I often talk to my friends about 
is that Socrates, uh, everyone knows that Socrates had this wife who was a piece of work. Uh, her name was Xanthope, and uh, she's notoriously shrewish, as the story goes. Like She uh, used to throw cold water off him. She tore his shirt off in public. Uh, she used to yell abuse at him and things like that and give him a really hard time. And incidentally, scholars believe that she was about 30 years younger than him and, and maybe came from a more aristocratic family. And possibly he also had a second wife, like he, he, uh, because there were a lot of the Athenian men had died uh, during the Peloponnesian War, so some of them maybe took two wives. Um, so Socrates had this complicated domestic situation and uh, this notoriously argumentative wife. And he talks, uh, there's a bunch of anecdotes about it, but there's also a dialogue in Xenophon where he goes into a lot of detail about his relationship with, with Xanthope. He's talking to his eldest son, Lamprocles, uh, about how he also has a hard time with Xanthope. And uh, this is also a little snippet. It's a really good example of Socrates' Elenchic style, his argumentative style. So he says... Um, to Lamprocles, look, first of all, he argues with him about whether Xanthope actually cares about him and wants to help him. And he forces Lamprocles to admit that his mother's sacrificed a lot for his sake. She really cares about him. She's always trying to help him. Like She's actually a loving mother, um, but she's just a pain in the ass sometimes because she yells at him and stuff. And he, he finds it intolerable. And then Socrates says this really weird thing to him, which I find fascinating. It's very pertinent to modern therapy, but I've never heard anyone put it quite like this uh, in modern therapy books. Socrates says, you know when you go and watch the tragedies, like sometimes there'll be one actor freaking out at another actor, like yelling abuse at them, threatening them and stuff like that. You know, it gets pretty heated in, uh, in, in the Greek tragedies, obviously. And Socrates says, do, do you think the actor that's on the receiving end should be frightened or upset, like with the actor that's yelling at them. And Lamprocles says, no, obviously not. Like, and, and Socrates says, well, you know, isn't that interesting? And Lamprocles said, well, don't be ridiculous, Dad. Like, because he knows that the other guy doesn't actually mean to hurt him. Socrates is like, yeah, but that's much worse than any of the abuse that your mother shouts at you. And Lamprocles says, yeah, but it's not real, Dad, right? Don't be silly. This is a silly argument, right? Like, it's not real. He doesn't actually intend to hurt him. So Socrates puts these arguments forward that seem ridiculous at first. And then there's this kind of slam dunk. At the, like, then he says, all right, but hang on a minute. Do you remember like five minutes ago, you told me that you were absolutely certain that your mother wanted to help you like, and didn't actually intend you any harm. Like, so you're saying that no matter how abusive these actors are, the main thing is that if you don't believe that they intend harm, then you should be indifferent to it, it's meaningless like it should be like water off a duck's back to you but you've just told me a few minutes earlier that you're 100% convinced that your mother fundamentally wants to help you like so as long as you focus on that and bear that in mind doesn't it make her temper tantrum seem superficial and trivial to put it another way what Socrates is saying that and the other anecdotes kind of inform this like that even though Xanthropy can be really difficult, she threw cold water off him, he saw that as kind of trivial, he didn't care, it's not a big deal to him. Like, but also he was looking at her character as a whole, and these were just small incidents, like a drop in the ocean in their relationship. Whereas people today, I think in many cases, would fixate on those things in isolation, and they take things out of contact, out of context, for example, because politicians do that all the time to each other. Mm. They'll take a snippet of something that somebody said, take it entirely out of context to try and do damage based on it rather than judging somebody's career and character and life as a whole and viewing snippet of what they said in relation to what you already know about the character.
So Socrates thought, well, like, we know that she really cares about us and wants to help us. So when she's throwing a bucket, of, like, that's just her frustration. Like, you know, maybe she doesn't know how to handle the situation. She's handling it badly or whatever. But it's an expression, actually, of our love for us. Like, and when I really understand that, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, I don't care if I get a bucket of cold water thrown over me. Like, what matters to me is this woman really loves me. Like, although she gets a bit frustrated with me sometimes. So that's what that's where I think there's a failure often in modern society. That we it's kind of a lie of omission. We take mm-hmm. a detail out of context and then struggle to understand it. We get really angry about it. And actually, I, I mentioned right at the beginning about modern research on emotions. One thing about I'd say even about I suppose about the feeling of anger is that when people feel angry, they tend to narrow the scope of their attention onto individual details. We call it threat monitoring. So we focus on the worst part of the situation, we tend to ignore everything else in order to protect ourselves. And, and that can be useful in a crisis. Like if you're you know, a caveman and you're being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger or whatever it is, you probably want to kind of ignore the conversation happening in the background and just focus on the saber-toothed tiger, right? But when it's something like a relationship, that can distort things. And it can make us take details and blow them out of proportion or misinterpret them by taking them out of context. I think that happens all the time today. Mm-hmm. See it all over the media, all over the internet, people continually doing that. Um, and Socrates was smart enough to have insight into that and realize that someone shouting at you or means nothing in and of itself. You have to view it in terms of the character as a whole. It's no more meaningful than an actor on a stage yelling at someone or throwing a bucket of water. When you view it in the context of the whole thing, it's just a performance or a play, then it suddenly seems trivial. It doesn't matter. When you know that your mother really loves you and she's made all these sacrifices and everything that she does is to help you, you can see this just as an expression of her frustration or whatever. Actually, you know, rather than being a sign uh, of malice or vice or whatever, like, you know, it's just a, yet another expression of our love in a way, although maybe not a very helpful one. Um, changes the whole picture. I've got to tell you this because this is from my own life, which relates exactly to what you're talking about. It was a huge lesson to me that occurred right around the time I got introduced to Stoicism. So it was this beautiful kind of combo, which was my, my grandfather and my auntie, his daughter, randomly just blew up at each other and kind of uh, like, uh, what do you call it when you're kind of no longer talking and that kind of thing. Uh, you and, someone off. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. Right. Just something. Anyway, and, and the whole family was kind of dragged in and it was a big disaster. And everybody this, was like, what the fuck happened? Like, that's so out of character. They were ticking along just fine. Years later we discovered that they both had early, well, she had early onset dementia. He had regular dementia at the same time. And all the behavior was actually explained by the dementia. Yeah. Now people got so focused on the interactions of disaster that they didn't see the big picture. Like, Hey, 50 years, these people go along fine. What the fuck's going on? Um, and once everybody understood it was dementia, the temperature of the whole situation came down like, Oh, that's what it is. And I had this epiphany. I'm like, well, whether it's dementia or something else, there's always just this reason for why they're being like this that has like nothing to do with me. And, and I realized, because I used to work with a lot of, uh, you know, I work with some really disordered people, schizophrenics, personality disorders. They would blow up at me even though they'd never met me before. And when that happened, I could be like, well, they, this is on them. This is their thing. I'm just witnessing it. I'm not really a part of it. And yet yeah. if my friend blew up at me, I'd be taking it personally. 
Yeah. Finally realized the, the friend's no different. Is- well, yeah, what's the difference? That's yeah. exactly what the Stoics think as well. Like, but it's got to do with their determinism. That, you know, the Stoics think there's a, there's a reason for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, Marcus Aurelius talks about this repeatedly. He says, enter into the minds of other people. He says, imagine them having breakfast. Imagine them sleeping. Imagine them going to the loo. You know, imagine them, like, you know, their life as a whole, trying to understand where they're coming from. He says, ask yourself what their fundamental priorities in life are. You know what it is that they're trying to achieve, and then interpret their their behaviour in in relation to that. So he's basically saying, really try and understand people, try and put yourself in their shoes, empathise with them, like before you arrive at a judgement about their their behaviour, like because you know nine times out of ten, you know like within a few minutes of really thinking about it properly, you'll understand that you know there are at least some reasons, or you know maybe people are making mistakes. You know, maybe their emotions are distorting their thinking. You know, Marcus also says very humbly, you know, the first thing you should do is stop and, and ask yourself whether you're not capable of doing the same thing yourself mm-hmm. in some situations. Or, or uh, you know, if, you know, the only reason that you don't do some of the things they're doing is because you, you know, perhaps you're you're frightened to speak your mind or, you know, there's something else holding you back. But in your imagination, are you having like uh, similar arguments to the ones that they're having and so on. So he says, you're just as capable of these outbursts as other people are. You're just as capable of misjudging situations as they are. You should remind yourself like nobody's perfect. So this idea like we're all imperfect is integral to stoicism, recognizing that. And, and a kind of forgiveness, but not a forgiveness that's mandated by God or, or you know a religion, but a forgiveness that's actually rational and philosophical and based on understanding what's going on. Um, if you're a psychotherapist, your job is to understand your clients. It's hard to get angry with them. You know, you go in a different headspace because you're like, well, I kind of understand that the thinking's distorted. I understand that stuff's happened to them in their childhood. You know, I can see the pattern that's evolved here. Like, so you don't take things personally that they say to you in the session. You know, it's just a consequence, like it's a cause-effect relationship. Um, although you might not like what someone's doing, like it doesn't mean you have to agree with what they're doing, but there's a reason why they're doing it. And when you understand that, it's hard to feel the same kind of anger. Like, to understand all is to forgive all, the saying goes. Naturally, how the Stoics approach things. You know, we can only really get super angry with people, like arguably, at least in many cases, when we allow ourselves to... to be stupid and ignorant about what's going on. If we make any effort at all to understand what's happening with other people, it, it usually waters down our anger somewhat. Oh, yeah. It's very hard to hate something you understand fully. You know? The other thing that Marcus says is, and this is linked to this, in any attempt to understand other people, people, this is also very much, there's a central paradox, as they call it, of Socrates' philosophy. Socrates said, look, people believe that what they're doing is justified, usually, even if you mm-hmm. don't agree with it. Now, even in the most extreme case, right, like people commit genocide, like murderous tyrants, you know, Hitler, Stalin, people like that, they definitely believed that what they were doing was justified, you know? And when you stop to kind of think about that, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't fight just as hard to stop them. Like, but, you know, those are, there are reasons why they did those things. And they, they didn't pop out of nowhere either. You know, there were whole cultures that preceded those people that led them to develop, that allowed them like, to develop those ideas and feel justified in holding them. It was a reflection in some ways of the culture that surrounded them. It reached that point. Um, it came from somewhere. Like, everything has a history. 
Mm. Right? It doesn't just appear from nowhere. Right? Hitler and Stalin just didn't pop out of thin air. There were events that led up to that. They got their ideas from other people. Like, and they felt justified in what they were doing. Like, they were acting, in a sense, to some extent, out of a kind of moral ignorance. Right? And that's how the Stoics and the Socratics want to view it. Socrates had this principle that no man does evil knowingly. Like, mm. No one wants to be ignorant. No one wants to be stupid. But tyrants believe that what they're doing is justified. Socrates would say they're wrong. Like, and sometimes you can't correct them. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. But the wise man tries to correct them. Yeah. Like, tries to educate them, tries to set a good example. Like, you know, it doesn't help anyone if we just assume that people are pure evil and deserve to be punished. I guess there's nowhere, really. And Socrates knew that, uh, and the, the Stoics knew that 2,000 years ago. Yeah, that, uh, that brought up a story from uh, my time in corrections, which is where I really learned this. There was no criminal offender that didn't have a backstory to why they committed the offense. It was, it was just paint by numbers. They were always going to do that based on the build-up. But there was this one guy, he did like, it was a very horrible crime. He basically put a child in an intensive care when he was on a meth binge. He just beat the crap out of this young child for no reason. Kind of thing that most people would just say, he's evil. When he got out of prison, I had a conversation with him that um, just blew my mind where I said, well, what do you think it's like to be that kid now? You know, you gave him brain damage and stuff like that. And he had honestly never thought of that before. Never once. He'd been so miserable about his own, you know, demise going to prison. And I said, well, what do you think it's like to be that kid? And it's like, uh, it's like his brain cracked open. He just never, and then all this empathy over the next few weeks just started pouring out and all this remorse. And he ended up doing like reparations. And then he became this like really productive member of society after that. Like it took a while, but I was like, nobody's asked him that before. How's he supposed to ask himself if the question doesn't exist inside his own head, you know? You see, there'll be people that listen to that and think, how is that even possible, right? But it's amazing the questions that people haven't asked themselves. Like, they're, as a therapist, you know, often you'll talk to clients, you don't want to patronize your client by asking questions that are too obvious. But at the same time, time and time again, you'll find that people haven't asked themselves questions that seem really glaringly obvious or, or that most people would just mm. take for granted right and that, that may be a shocking what seems like a shocking revelation to many people is just a question or we are looking at things that, that you'd think most people would completely take for granted of course when you hurt another person you would naturally imagine how they must feel but a lot of people just never even kind of take that step uh, until someone like yourself you know cues them or prompts them to do it that's remarkable you know, and again, you know, like it shows the power, I suppose, in a sense of the Socratic method. You know, you're just like, you know, asking someone a question. Um, mm. You know, and right. no one's ever asked him that question before, right? He's never asked himself that question. And it changed things. It doesn't, but it, you can't just say, we have to pursue this with the reserve clause. You know, sometimes you might ask someone a question or you might tell, mm. give them a bit of information that goes straight over their head. doesn't make any difference. But nevertheless, you know, we should try to educate people. Like, you know, the best thing in life is when someone achieves a realization that changes their character. Like, that's the best result we can hope for, really, when we, you know, like, we, we make someone more enlightened. Like, it's what we should, we should be trying to do. The Stoics said, uh, at one point, they even say the wise man will write books in order to help other people. The wise, the Stoic wise man would be writing self-help books. Like, you know, like, this is a strange thought today. Seneca would be blogging. 
Why people thank us? <laughs> oh, of course they would. Why? You know, they'd be doing po- they would they, the the store was out in public. Socrates taught in the uh, Athenian uh, marketplace, the Agora, in the city centre. He mingled with everybody. It was scandalous because the sophists only taught men. They only taught mainly aristocratic men. They only taught mainly uh, Athenian citizens. The the educators or experts that preceded. Uh, uh, Socrates mainly taught in the gymnasia where only men were allowed and uh, I, I think some of them only Athenian citizens rather than foreign immigrants would be allowed um, but Socrates went into the marketplace and we're told time and time again he taught men and women, young and old Athenians and immigrants um, you know rich and poor, he didn't discriminate Like, and part of that was that he was lower middle class himself he was a stonemason and he had a wealthy friend called Crito, who became his patron. And we're told by Diogenes, by Diogenes Laertes that Crito paid for Socrates to leave the stonemason's workshop and go out and attend the lectures of office and educate himself. So he had a patron that allowed this guy that wouldn't normally have access to this level of education to go out and get an education. And then he rocked Athenian society by going out and educating everybody under the sun himself, left, right and centre, you know, rich and poor, big and small, you know, for, like, uh, citizen or foreigner, he didn't care. Um, and that was a shockingly radical idea. He did it out in the marketplace. But the other philosophers uh, went to the gymnasia again, uh, Plato, uh, Aristotle. Um, but it was the Stoics that took philosophy back to the agora. Like the Stoapoikolis, as you said, you've been to it. Uh, it's, it's in the city centre of Athens. It's uh, it would have been facing the Agora, and anyone could come. Um, the Stoics taught men and women alike. Zeno was a foreign immigrant, like to mm. Athens. So it was a, a cosmopolitan approach to philosophy. Everybody was included, and they thought that uh, everybody potentially could be be educated, free men and slaves. Um, and the, you know, famously in the Mino. Uh, Socrates is uh, engaging in Socratic questioning with a slave. I've, I've received education myself, working with gang members, especially gang leaders and stuff. Like, you meet this guy who's like half my size and he controls killers twice my size, you know, and you talk to him and he knows some stuff. And I and it was amazing. It's only in, because I didn't realize it at the time, but it's only looking backwards that I realized there was stoicism within the criminal underworld, especially in uh-huh. the, the leaders who, they had nowhere else to go in life. They were in poor gangs from birth, society. They were outlaws, essentially. Uh, they chose to sort of go down that path. But it was interesting how they would like, for example, when they talk about doing business, they would often talk about sort of leaving emotion out of it, but they were really talking about a lot of stellar principles. They would do all the listening at a meeting so they could receive information before they reacted stuff. So yeah, it's, um, it brings me to, to something I want to ask you about just to get to know you a bit more and to sort of circle back to what we talked about, about practical application. What, what, I guess if anything, your kind of favorite, but what do you, consciously apply in your normal everyday life to kind of bring the philosophy of stoicism into practical application? Well, people are going to hate me for saying this, but I talk about it a lot. Like, and that was an important thing. You know, Socrates said you should, uh, like I say, he left the stonemason's workshop and spent his life just going around talking about philosophy. It's true. If you, you have to do things differently. And of course, 
you know, we need to redress the balance a bit because that side has been forgotten. Philosophers now sit in libraries and just talk. Right? They don't really do much practical stuff. Um, the, the Stoics thought well, you need to kind of combine both. But for me, a big part of it is I, I have the opportunity to do this interview. You know, I'll talk to people. I'll, I'll bring philosophy into conversations that I have. My little girl, uh, she knows all about Socrates. I have an eight-year-old nice. since she was small. I tell her stories about Greek mythology. Uh, I tell Aesop's fables and, you know, things that are related to philosophy or that we can bring morals into uh, or different ways of looking at life. And she knows a lot of stories about Socrates, Diogenes and Cynic and stuff. So I make philosophy kind of part of my life and a thing that I have an opportunity to discuss. But there are practices that I do, you know, on the one side there's the little physical things. I, like I fast several times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I have cold showers, like uh, in Nova Scotia, that's a challenge. Like, you know, it is. Brutal sometimes. It's not so bad. It's pretty easy in the summer. It gets a lot harder in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I walk around in the snow and stuff here and I don't feel that I need a jacket. And my friends are like, are you crazy? I don't understand. Like, I'm like, I just have cold chills every month. It doesn't really bother me anymore. And it wakes me up. And so I don't need to drink gallons of coffee and stuff. But um, So I do these little kind of practices. Those are trivial things. But Stoics today tend to do stuff like that. And, uh, you know, like if I, I go and I do exercise, like if I go to the gym and stuff, I, I have a different way of looking at it. You know, rather than my focus being, oh, I want to lose weight or get fit or whatever, I think that would be nice. It's a preferred indifferent. Like, you know, it makes sense to orient things or design a workshop, a workout that, that would achieve that. Like, but I'm not super hung up on it. You know, like some people achieve that more easily than others. Like, but my, my the main thing is I, I, I kind of think I want to be the sort of person that has the self-discipline to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I kind of think about when I, if I go to the gym, for instance, I would think about like the, the sort of people that I would admire. And that could be somebody who's, you know, like really unfit or, or, or uh, you know, disabled or, um, you know, has some obstacle to overcome, but they're being very determined about doing it. And I sort of think I want to be like that guy. It could be somebody obese, like who's at the gym, and they're just, but they're just like you know they're struggling to run for five minutes. But like you know the fact that they're doing it anyway, like and they'll keep going back and keep going back. And I'll be thinking like I, that's what I want to model, you know. I'm not I, I'm not kind of like thinking oh I want you know my goal here is like super to have the perfect physique or whatever. I kind of think well, I want to get the self discipline, you know. That's the stoic approach, right? You go into the gym or fasting or taking cold showers or something like that. Um, we'd orient it around doing something that's healthy. Obviously, that's common sense, rather than something that's unhealthy. But the goal isn't necessarily, the main goal isn't to get the external result. The main goal is to get the, the, the self-discipline, to be like the kind of guy or the kind of person that's capable of doing that. Like, because stoicism, a lot of it can be understood in terms of looking around. Sometimes people get lost a bit when they read the Stoics and they say, what is justice? What is... Uh, what are the virtues? And, and the Stoics, in a way, and Socrates thought that this was a kind of, not a stupid question, but, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people ask questions that blind them and mm-hmm. encourage them to overcomplicate things so they can't see the wood for the trees. Yeah. Socrates would have said, you guys already know what virtue is, by the way. Uh, you take it for granted every minute of every day, to some extent. Like, you know the sort of people that you admire. You know the difference between a good person and a bad person, right? To some extent, right? You can look around you and see the sort of people that you have more respect for in life, right? You might need to reflect on it a little bit, but you're not completely lost. You've got a rough idea of what a more admirable person looks like, what a hero looks like rather than a villain, like in a movie. 
Like you, know, you kind of mm-hmm. take a lot of these things for granted. And so the Stoics, the first book of the Meditations, the entire Marcus describes sixteen people, their friends and tutors, and he goes mm-hmm. through each one of them and asks himself, "Why do I admire this guy? Like, what is it about him that I admire?" For his predecessor and his adopted father, Antoninus Pius, he's got like a whole page. And then he goes back to it later in the book, and he's got like another half a page where he goes over his virtues again. But he, even for people that he's quite ambivalent about, like his uh, adoptive brother, and uh, Lucius Verus, he kind of says, well, he's very loyal like, and very affectionate. He, the guy was an alcoholic and a complete disaster, is it? You know, but uh, Marcus is like, but he does have loyalty. Like, and I kind of admire him for that, like, and I can learn something from like the, you know the, the the way he's affectionate towards other people. So, you know, we can identify the virtues that we admire in other people, and there's a huge gulf normally between the qualities that people admire in other people and the qualities that they try to exemplify in their own life. Mm-hmm. Right, and so a big part of stoicism is just kind of like applying this what we would call a double standard strategy in modern therapy. So, like, asking yourself, well, what would happen if you were more consistent in embracing these values? Like, you actually tried to become more like the sort of people that you admire. Like, I, I would say in, in many respects, I'd be happy to say that's a, a reasonable summation, you know, and obviously in very simplified terms of what the, the gist of Stoicism is. The, the Stoics provide us with a technology, a philosophy, for helping us to become more like the sort of people that we would admire on reflection. Like, and uh, that's what Socrates is doing. There's a great dialogue in Xenophon where a young man, it's actually Crito's son, Critobulus, and he comes to Socrates, he's probably 15, and he, he says, look, I'm entering Athenian society, and Socrates, you know everybody. You know some of the wealthiest, most, most powerful men in Athens. And I, I, you know, I was wondering if maybe you could introduce me to them. I, you know, this is a big deal for a young man at, at that point in Athenian society. And Socrates starts off by asking dumb, simple questions. He says, yeah, sure. You know, what do you think would be the qualities you'd be looking for in an ideal friend? And so Critobulus and, and Socrates work out this kind of list of qualities that would be desirable in a friend. They kind of reflect on it a little bit, weigh it up, and they quite easily get to a, a list, shopping list of qualities. Then to cut a long story short, like having asked a simple question, Socrates then flips it around and asks the guy a much harder question. So he says, well, how many of these qualities do you exemplify yourself? And so the answer is, well, not very many of them. right? So Socrates then says, well, do you think you might have this back to front? So there's two things here. One would be to become the sort of friend that other people would desire. And then the other thing would be to be introduced to them. He says, but if you already were the sort of friend that other people would uh, desire, like, I, would, I would be falling over myself to introduce you to everybody I knew. Like, that, that other part mm-hmm. comes relatively easily. Um, and, uh, and he goes, that's what you're focused on, though, like, is getting me to introduce you to people rather than like developing those qualities within yourself. And this is a, one of the major themes of the, uh, Socrates' philosophy is that you should be as you wish to appear. And that's really what he's saying to Critobulus. You, you've got it back to front, buddy. Like, you're trying to appear in a certain way. Like, really, you should try and become. Your focus should be on who you actually are, not who you appear to be. You should become the sort of person that you want to appear. Ask yourself what the qualities you are looking for uh, in a, an ideal friend are. But your focus you know, should be more on whether you possess those qualities yourself. 
And that's a devastating question for this guy. He goes away and says, you're, you're right. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I should be focusing on my self-improvement. Um, but it hadn't even occurred to him to look at it that way around. Right? And that's really the, the theme of Socrates' philosophy and the, the theme of Stoicism to a large extent. We all know, we, you already know what you think the difference between a good friend and a bad friend is, what the difference is between a hero and a villain. You might reflect on it a bit, but you basically it's not that difficult a question. Um, you know, that's your guide to some extent in terms of how you could improve yourself. And then the Stoics give us a bunch of techniques to help us move further in that direction. I absolutely love that. You know, I, I had an idea, I call it the authenticity gap, which is the difference between who you constantly are and who you wish you were. And there's this kind of noticeable gap. Um, and it relates to the same thing, which is, you know, you, the only reason you admire someone else is because they're doing something you wish you were doing. Yeah. Otherwise, it would just be respect of a peer. Um, you bring out something that's is, is really interesting. So in the, in the Brojo audience, quite often a guy enters because he's needy for a partner and kind of pursuing and, and chasing. And so often he's looking for, he can list the value, the qualities he wants in a partner, but he's as almost no awareness of whether or not he's bringing any value into this thing. And yeah. I remember the author Neil Strauss puts it like, we're all out there looking for someone valuable instead of trying to become someone valuable. And I think that was a, a huge thing. Like these guys are going to chase someone of high value with, with nothing to offer in terms of their own development. I remember someone asked me a question once a long time ago, would you want your daughter bringing you home? You know, that kind of idea, like if your daughter found you as a man, would you be happy with that? And I remember at the time I was just really honest with myself. I said, nah, not yet. And now I would say yes. And, and it's funny, it's the little things, it's the cold showers and everything, but it's also the constant self-examination, the moderation. You know, you mentioned something before about Socrates says, you already know what virtues are. Like I've seen this in the Facebook group you run it's kind of frustrating some of the people who argue these tiny points without seeing the bigger picture. Somebody might be arguing, say, what, what does moderation mean? I'm like, well, if you drank 12 beers last night, how do you feel about that? Was that moderation? You know the answer already. Yeah. Stop debating the word. Look at your own. Is it Marcus Aurelius that says, let's not argue about what a good man is, just be one sort of thing? Yeah. 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 That's it's, also coming up. And it's, it's, sometimes it's difficult for people to articulate some of these things. Like Socrates definitely thought it was hard for people to put the virtues into words. Like, but he believed that they knew. Like, he would talk to people who were good friends, and he would say, you know, like, I know, I know that at some level you guys understand what friendship is, but can you define it for me? And he often found that they, they'd find it really difficult to define it, like, even though they, you know, he'd say, well, you, you, you clearly are good friends. Like, it might help if you could define it, like get clearer about it, be more, allow you to be more, live it more consistently, perhaps. Like, but it's not like you're completely oblivious, like to what it is. You know what you know, you know what a friend looks like. You know uh, whether somebody's uh, doing you good or not, or uh, even if you take a step further back, you know, like you say, what would be a good friend for your children or a bad friend for them? You know, is it just someone that makes them laugh, but maybe they're having a bad influence on them? Is that a good friend or not? It's not rocket science, mm. you know. But sometimes we have to shift perspectives around in order to be able to evaluate things. You know, a big part of this is, like I said, I mentioned we call it 
the double standard strategy in therapy when you're applying a different standard to another person than you would apply to yourself. And you could see it being a version of that when we praise people for possessing certain virtues, but we don't we don't try to possess those virtues ourselves. Um, that's a kind of a double standard. But the, you could say that the whole point of Socratic questioning was to allow people to have um, uh, more consistency, basically. It's about consistency. So Socrates thought his method allowed him to expose contradictions. He would question people and expose contradictions in their, their thinking. Now, it, you know, it's often been pointed out that if you have a, a view, a perspective that's free of contradictions, it doesn't necessarily prove that it's true, like, but at least it's coherent. Like, if you have a contradictory set of views, they're definitely false. At, at least the conjunction of them is false. Something, you know, can't literally be black and white at the same time. You know, like, it's not, like, it can't be both completely black and completely white. You can't have two completely contradictory beliefs. That's false, right? One of them in isolation might be true, or there might be another way of formulating that is true, but that can't literally be true. A contradiction can't literally be true by its very nature. So if you have a coherent worldview that's free from contradictions, you don't know it's true, but it's certainly better. At least it's coherent. And that's what Socrates was aiming for. And, you know, it's no coincidence that the, the slogan of Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius at no point in the meditation says that he's a Stoic. Um, but he, that he yeah, was. that's interesting. There's, like, there's no question that he was. Like, yeah. But he, he does mention the Stoics very briefly at one point. Um, but he does... Uh, but we also we know from the histories that he was uh, understood universally to be a Stoic, and he mentions his Stoic teachers and stuff. But he, what he does do, uh, although he doesn't use the expression Stoic or Stoicism, he he uses the expression living in agreement with nature yeah. or living in accord with nature. There's kind of two versions of it in Greek, and that's the main Stoic slogan that was kind of the catchphrase of their philosophy. But the original version of it was just living in agreement, which kind of means living in harmony or living consistently is the kind of connotation of it, mm -hmm. you know, and that, and then it evolved to mean living in harmony with your own nature, living in harmony with other people and with your fate, with the cosmos as a whole. So the, the stories distinguish these three different levels. Our relationship with our own true, true nature, our own and ourself needs to be authentic and integrated. And the stories thought we're fundamentally thinking beings so to live in harmony with ourselves, we, we need to think consistently and rationally about life. And then living in harmony with like, other people around us, and that means even treating our enemies with respect and, uh, and and wanting other people to, genuinely wanting other people to flourish and improve rather than just, you know, like having hostile or vicious attitudes towards them. And uh, living in harmony with life as a whole, the cosmos as a whole, which means kind of accepting the reality for what it is, um, not, you know, railing against it but, or complaining about life. Um, and, you know, for Stoics, this is a kind of piety. It's kind of mystical or spiritual, like oneness with the, the universe that they're aiming for as well. But, you know, the, the, the centerpiece of the slogan is this idea of living in agreement, living in harmony, but it also meant living consistently. The Stoics thought it's a marker of foolishness, a mark of folly that someone's inconsistent, that they vacillate they they say like a butterfly uh, fluttering um, they say someone that hasn't really worked out what they believe, whereas they say the wise man sticks to his guns generally, I mean he learns mm. from things but he's more consistent because he, he's, he's more sure of himself he knows his own mind 
Like he has worked out his values and priorities in life, you know. And they say when someone's really clear about their fundamental values in life, you know, they're they're not blowing all over the place as much. They don't vacillate as much. Hadrian was a genius, but he vacillated from one moment to the next. He'd rip your eye out one minute and apologize the next day, right? Mm-hmm. The story's all like, yeah, he's, that, that's a marker of folly, right? He he doesn't really know what he, he values in life. He's just going with you know whatever the crowd say, basically. You know, he's, he's just playing off against an audience. Like, um, but the wise man is self-reliant. He's independent because he's worked out his values. So this is, a, I think, consistency is an important part of Stoicism. And that would mean not applying double standards. You can't praise other people for self-discipline one minute like, and then the next minute do the opposite yourself. Like, if you do that, you're a hypocrite. Mm. Like, it's a contradiction. And so I suppose this, what the stories are saying is we need to kind of root out hypocrisy from our lives. That's a major part of it. Um, and, and embrace a more coherent, more consistent set of values and worldview. And I, and I can totally understand. And my next topic I want to sort of finish with you on is your book. Um, why you'd choose Marcus Aurelius out of everybody makes complete sense to me. One of the things is he repeated things a lot in meditations. That was one of the first things that caught my attention. He seemed to face the same dilemmas and, and kind of repeat his, um, his, his kind of examination of them. And I thought, well, actually, that's what a consistent guy does. You're going to see repetition with a consistent guy. He's going to catch yeah. himself each and every time he drops the ball and deal with it as best he can. Um, and actually, the fact that he does not call himself a stoic, for me, actually solidifies the title because – He's not attached to having a title. He, I think he often talks about even being the big boss, the emperor, something he has to detach from because um, he's just a guy kind of thing. And and I remember thinking the same thing when I went to the the Stoa is kind of like that thing's just, it's gone to dust, gone to ruin. It's like it never tried to, <laughs> it sounds weird, but it never tried to like maintain its status. It was just a place for people to meet. Marcus Aurelius was just a guy. Let's 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 wrap up by talking about the book. One of the things I'm really interested in is why Marcus? Why choose him and what are you trying to accomplish with the book through Marcus? Well, there's an easy answer to that, which is that, you know, like for, I'll, well, I'll give you the kind of story in a way. The backstory is that I was asked to write another book. So that, that was my book. Not, this is book number six. So I was asked to write another book about stoicism. And I thought, well, I've already written books about stoicism, right? So I don't want to just write the same thing over and over again. Um, so the trick is, you know, writing books, you, you kind of have to build on what you've already done often. Um, mm. But you want to have a new twist on it. So I thought, I'll write an introduction to Stoicism, but it has to be unlike other introductions to Stoicism. But I can't just write, you know, Beginner's Guide to Stoicism again. I've already done that. And, and loads of other people are bringing out books that are like that as well. So I need to come up with a different angle. And I, th- I thought about that. And it, it struck me that because I've got a little girl, you know, I teach her philosophy by telling her like, anecdotes and stories. So I thought this is good for adults as well, you know. If you want to really make it accessible to people, it's good to give them stories that they can relate to and then maybe bring the philosophy into it. And that that's not something other people have really done. So I can write an introduction to Stoicism that takes the form of historical anecdotes and stories. And I felt that was the right thing to do because... Um, not only is it a, a new approach, a different approach, but that's how philosophy was taught in the ancient world mm. often. Like they, they had dialogues, they had lecturers, but 
philosophy is also handed down through satires, actually, and also anecdotes and folk tales. We have a whole collection of them in a book called Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers by Diogenes Laertius. That's uh, probably our best example. It's a whole compendium of anecdotes about different philosophers, including many Cynic and Stoic philosophers. And, uh, you know, the most famous example of all of those anecdotes is the one that many people will know already about uh, Diogenes the Cynic, who lived like a beggar. He went around naked. He didn't have any possessions mm. except his knapsack. He lived in a uh, like a big garden, a storage jar. And uh, allegedly, this probably isn't historically true, by the way, but the anecdote was that Alexander the Great passed by and said to the most powerful man in the world, and said, uh, is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes uh, said, yeah, can you step aside? You're blocking the sun. Like, you know, I don't need anything that you can give me, buddy. Like, you know, I just want you to get out of the way. And there's all sorts of resonance to that because he claimed to be the, the son of the uh, solar god Apollo and stuff, and, you know, blocking the real sun. Like, I don't need anything from you. And the, the story is that Alexander, when he walked away, said, if I wasn't Alexander, I'd rather be Diogenes. Mm. Uh, there's also a legend that when Alexander died they took his casket through the streets he said he wanted his hands to be dangling out either side so that he could show everyone that he wasn't taking anything with him Uh, he was leaving life empty handed despite all of his victories and everything like doesn't amount to anything and uh, Marcus Aurelius says Alexander the Great and his mule driver are both brought to the same level by death Mm. they all end up in the same place You you can't take it all with you but uh, so there's all these anecdotes, right, and little stories, and, and you know I discuss these with my friends, and I, when I give talks, and uh, you know I talk to my daughter about some of these stories, and I, I realise this is a way that philosophy becomes accessible to a wider audience. So I wanted to write like that, and I thought we have a bunch of anecdotes about Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, but not very many. We don't know that much about him. Um, but the Stoic we know most about is the last famous Stoic of the ancient world, Marcus Aurelius, and we know more about him because he was famous and powerful. So because he was Roman emperor, we have several surviving histories of his reign. We have a, his private journal happens to give us a lot of insight into his character, um, more than say the writing, the discourses of Epictetus don't necessarily tell us that much about Epictetus' personality, yeah. but the, the, the meditations is, is more personal, it gives us more insight. Um, and there's a lot of personal details in it, like the, the first chapter in particular is very biographical. Uh, a lot of it is about his relationship with his tutors and his family members and so on. But we also have a cache, not, a lot of people don't realise this, but we also have a cache of letters that Marcus Aurelius wrote to his rhetoric tutor, Fronto, that allow us to get an insight into his personality and these sort of very minute details of his personal life. But we have also, in addition, these histories of his reign. So we know about some of the major events of his life and we have anecdotes from other sources about how he coped with uh, stressful situations. And uh, that allows us to tell a more detailed and historically accurate story about him than about any other Stoic. Mm. And also because he's the last, you know, we can then weave in, we can have stories within stories. So we can be talking about the life of Marcus Aurelius and then digress into an anecdote about Zeno like, that Marcus would probably have heard. Like, right. We can assume that he would have been told about the founder of his school. So uh, that, that seemed to me the most obvious way in. And also, um, in terms of reaching a wider audience, uh, again, a lot of people don't realise this, but because I, I, I talk to so many people that are involved with Stoicism, I, I, I realised that a lot of them had read Marcus Aurelius 
and read the meditations but never read any books on stoicism and mm -hmm. they didn't maybe partly because he doesn't use the word very often they never really thought about it as stoicism uh facebook have data on profile keywords and so half a million people on facebook mention the word stoicism in their profile um but one and a half million three times as many people mention marcus aurelius interesting like, there are three times as many people into Marcus Aurelius as there are into Stoicism, right? Um, and so that was another reason I thought it was useful to focus on a person rather than on the philosophy and the historical figure gives us a, an inroad. Uh, and another reason is I noticed over the years having the same discussions over and over. So people would say um, Stoicism, if, if you get involved in debates a lot about the same issues, you quickly realise that you can have a rational, lengthy, detailed debate with someone about the evidence for uh, a particular, uh, over a particular point. Psychotherapy techniques, I usually argue with people about theories or whatever. Uh, but often there's also just a simple kind of rhetorical point that you can make that's a knockdown argument, mm -hmm. and it's much easier and much quicker, right? Um, and you, you learn that when you're talking about stoicism, so you can argue to the cows come home with people, about whether the Stoics are advocating the extirpation of all emotions. Like some uh, academics even believed in the past more so that that's what the Stoics were talking about. It's not. like They, they thought that we should be cultivating healthy emotions. Um, but it's much easier if you point at a real Stoic like Marcus Aurelius and, and say, look, d does this dude seem unemotional to you? Like, look at his letters. Like, he's effusive in his expressions of affection towards his friends and family. Like he's more emotional probably than most or most of the people reading him. Like mm -hmm. he's uh, he's you know he, if you read his letters, he's always telling people how much he loves them. Like you know he's he's not an unemotional man, but it's just particular emotions. It's family love and paternal love. He's he's a washing, um, and he says. Then go back and look at what he actually says in the meditations. He says in book one when he's describing Sextus Ocherenea, one of his teachers, Stoic teacher. He says that he exemplified the ideal of living in agreement with nature. He was free from the irrational passions and yet full of philostorgia, full of natural affection, like or family love, or however you want to translate that word, full of love, free from passion. Like says it right there in black and white. That's exactly what Marx Aurelius was like in person. Right? Mm. But when you look at the real living flesh and blood human being, I talk about it as putting a face on stoicism. Yeah. then it becomes more obvious that the misconceptions are absurd. And the other absurd one is that because Stoics accept things, that they would be like doormats, they would just kind of like stand there and let people use them mm -hmm. as a punching bag, you know, turning that shape. They would be like sitting on their hands, stay-at-home Stoicism, right? And uh, you might think some people might get that from reading the books, right? But then you look at the guy or any of the other Stoics. Um, the Stoics went to war. Like, the Stoics were... Um, defied dictator. Cato died making a stand against Julius Caesar during the, the, the civil war over the Roman Republic. Um, you know, even Zeno, the founder of the school, he didn't uh, uh, in, uh, engage in, in uh, military campaigns, but his students did. His successors did. Um, these were men of action in many cases. Uh, Chrysippus said the Stoic, the wise man, would engage in politics if nothing, unless anything prevents him. Like, he would engage in public life anyway, you know, not necessarily politics as we understand it today, but he would engage with his community, he would engage with society at some level. 
and maybe become a statesman, you know, I maybe do something philanthropic or whatever. But he wouldn't just kind of like become a hermit. Um, and Marcus Aurelius, again, like, so people think, oh, Stoicism leads to passivity. So let's take an example, Marcus Aurelius. Like, did he just sit around doing nothing? No, he was a workaholic. Like, you know, he put himself in the front line um, and during the, for nearly 10 years during the Marcomannic Wars. Um, you know, he struggled with uh, health problems. Uh, he went to Austria, like, and uh, along the Danube and uh, Hungary and, uh, uh, like, the fighting the, the enemy, um, positioned himself right in the Roman legionary fortresses right on the front line of the, the Marcomannic War, whereas other emperors would have kept their distance. Uh, like Lucius Verus, actually, his, his brother, when he sent him to the east, uh, didn't go anywhere near the other fighting. Uh, but Marcus was a man of action, and uh, he, he worked very vigorously, both, both uh, leading the military and also as an administrator and uh, creating laws and uh, adjudicating in legal cases and um, you know, writing, teaching philosophy. Uh, no, he, he gave, uh, allegedly gave public readings of his philosophy uh, as well as writing his private notes and so on. But he... Um, you know, it's obvious that he, he wasn't just a complete, you know, doormat. He stayed at home. He, he lived a very vigorous, focused and determined life um, in, in the face of great adversity. And he persevered much more than, than other people might have done in, in the face of this, the problems that he was encountering. So it's much easier to address these misconceptions. You can argue about what the texts say or what the philosophy teaches. But when you're talking about an actual Stoic, it just becomes really obvious that, like, he was a very loving and affectionate man, not an unemotional robot, and that he was a very vigorous, determined and self-disciplined man who was dedicated to, to justice and improving his society and not someone that lived like a hermit or just stayed at home and passively accepted things. So stoicism becomes more alive more and more rounded when you put a human face on it. That, that's why I chose Marcus. And also I think he's, you know, in some ways the, one of the the more interesting uh, Stoics, and because he's one of the later Stoics, but perhaps his interpretation of philosophy is kind of a little bit more rounded um, than, you know, you, you go back to the beginning of the philosophy, you get kind of a more extreme version of it, and over time it gets like a little bit more, the rough edges get polished off and you get a lot more rounded picture of things. Um, but mainly um, because he was famous, we have these histories about his reign, so we, we know more about his life. Well, I think, yeah, I think you absolutely made the right choice because um, for me, reading meditations put a face on it. Um, it was just the personable nature where he would actually talk through his dilemmas, his failures, uh, whereas the other Stoics, I found they tend to talk in a detached way, like this is what one should do if one was to, whereas Marx is like, look, I had an argument with the lawyer today and I think I overreacted. He kind of... It was so much more real. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do too. I, you know, what does he do about it? I love this. Something as well. In all honesty, like maybe some things I can be a little bit down on Seneca. I love Seneca. I love his writings, but there's something about Seneca. He was a very, he was almost as powerful as Marcus Aurelius at one point. He was advisor to Nero. He's Nero's speechwriter, um, so he was close to the the seat of uh, power in the in the empire. He was his right right hand man to the emperor. But Seneca's examples of the problems that he faces in life are like, you know, 
whether he's going to have two slaves or four slaves carrying his sedan chair and things like that. I'm not joking, by the way. (laughs) You know, like he, uh, you know, or he panicked one day when he was in a a, a boat and he he jumped out and swam to shore because he thought it was going to sink. And, you know, he's, it's kind of like somehow a little bit harder to, um, he's he's less relatable in in certain respects, even though, and he, he doesn't talk as much about his personal life, but when he does, it seems a little bit, less uh, relatable. Whereas Marcus Aurelius, it's very strange because he's fighting this military campaign when he's writing the meditations, but he doesn't talk about these big issues of state that much. He, he, they're in the kind of background. He, he's kind of talking about um, more about his relationship with his children, uh, his anxiety about them, like uh, his frustration with his friends and his teachers. Like it's, um, the things that he talks about in the meditations generally are on a much more personal and intimate level, and a lot of them are st- his struggles to kind of like empathise with, with with people that are frustrating him. Um, he, he's you know he seems more relatable somehow, even though he's at the very top um, of society, whereas Seneca somehow you know uh, just comes across occasionally as a kind of rich, sort of privileged guy, you know, with, with uh, you know, sort of first world issues, like, that are, like, you know, not, it's hard, a little bit harder to empathise with. And he, he has less to, he's always giving more advice out and having, you know, less kind of, like, to say about his own progress or own struggles. Although, ironically, he says something really cool about that. And it kind of does the opposite. He says, um, you know, um, some of the other schools of philosophy were named after the founder, like Epicureanism, Pythagoreanism. And uh, the Stoics originally called themselves the Zenonians, which sounds like a kind of race of aliens or something, right? Yeah, nice. um, but they, uh, after Zeno, their founder, but that was very short-lived, and they quickly changed the name to the Stoics after the Stoicoikoli, where they, as you know, where they met. Um, and one reason they did that is they didn't believe their founder was perfectly wise, uh, in the same way that Socrates denied being perfectly wise, and uh, Socrates and, and Zeno desired, de- denied being experts, uh, whereas the Sophists put themselves forward as experts. But Epicurus and Pythagoras claimed to be experts. They thought they were enlightened beings, and their followers worshipped their birthdays, memorised their sayings, carried pictures of them around, treated them as if they were semi-divine uh, beings. Um, whereas Zeno uh, admitted his own imperfections and, and said that his students had to think for themselves. And, and Seneca says something about that, which I, th- I would like to believe goes all the way back to Zeno. He says to Lucilius in his letters, don't think of me as being an expert, like a, a doctor giving you advice. Um, think of it more like we're both in hospital and I'm just a fellow patient in the bed beside you, but I've been undergoing treatment for a bit longer. So he's like, it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous, like somebody mm. that's been going through the process for a bit longer. Like, he said, all, all I've got on you is a few more years undergoing treatment, so I, I can tell you what's worked for me, like, and I can I can talk to you, but it's more like peer support. Like, you know, that's all. I, I'm not claiming to be like a surgeon like, or an expert or something. Like, I'm not a guru. Like, and... Uh, but then he talks more like a guru. He doesn't say as much about his own struggles, whereas Marcus Aurelius because you have this private journal, it's all him kind of um, divulging, like, this is what, these are the struggles that I had with anger and stuff, you know, and this is how I cope with them. Um, and so it's, the meditations, in a sense, is all about modelling. Marcus is kind of providing a role model rather than lecturing us. Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's the impression I got. There was that kind of humility, that vulnerability to it. Sometimes when I was reading Seneca's letters, I got a sense he was like he probably has worse stuff going on, but he chooses to use like a detached example. Um, even if he was to say like I've been doing this longer than you have, whereas Marcus is more like I'm like anyone. Like I'm I'm having the same struggles that all humans have. I'm gonna go to dust and be forgotten like anyone. Ironically, he still remembered. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's a great choice, and, and I couldn't recommend your book enough to people because I think one of the, I think you've done brilliantly to make stoicism accessible. It's something also Ryan Holiday did for me, which was he put stoicism in a way where I could get introduced to it without being overwhelmed by like because uh, I'm not a historian or, or even wasn't even really into philosophy get overwhelmed by like ancient text. Um, I, I love this idea. And I, you know, one thing I really, I'm taking away from this even more than, than the, the thinking behind your book is actually what you talked about you doing with your daughter, mm-hmm. which is like, I love the idea of an eight year old getting kind of uh, probably, I guess, moderated versions of these anecdotes and stories to get her sort of moral guidance from rather than watching Peppa Pig or something. Um, I really love that idea because I, I, I've got a theory. Mm-hmm. That you're never too young to be introduced to at least rudimentary forms of philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's things that she wouldn't relate to, and I, I have to revise a lot of these stories and change them to, to make them relatable to her, but... Um, you know, she can talk about. I'll tell you a little story, and it's in. It's actually in the book. Like, so um, apologies if anyone reads the book. I'm just kind of repeating it, but I like this story because I told. I've told her this many times, and I really always remember the way she responded. And she would have been maybe six when I told her this, maybe even five. And I, I told her, um, look, there was this guy called Xenophon, and he he led an army. Incidentally, uh, he was famous for that. He wrote a book called The Anabasis. It's like a famous classic in military history. So he was a famous Athenian general. And, but when he was a young man, he was a young officer, one day he was just walking through Athens and he went between two buildings down an alleyway and it was dark, it was late at night. And something really weird happened. Like, as he was walking down the alleyway in the darkness, he, he heard a sound and at the end of the alleyway someone held out a wooden staff and blocked his exit so he can get through. And so Xenophon stepped back and he was kind of startled by this. He thought, what the, what's going on, right? And, uh, and then he heard this voice from the shadows. And this strange voice said, excuse me, can you tell me where someone would go if they want to acquire goods? And Xenophon thought, well, that's a really strange question, right? Because we're standing right next to the Agora. It's the city centre and this thrive is the most thriving marketplace in the known world. Uh, you can get everything there, jewellery, clothing, f- exotic foods, uh, you know, any, anything you want. You can get, like, just over there. We're right beside it, buddy. And then uh, it, the voice uh, came from the shadows again, and this time it said, uh, indeed, but where would someone go if they want to learn how to become a good person? And uh, and Xenophon was gobsmacked because he thought, no, this is a really hard question, right? I don't know the answer. The other one was pretty easy, right? Like, too easy. But this one's really hard. I don't know. I have no idea. I've not really thought about that. Like, it's a strange question. Like, I don't know the answer to it. And maybe he thought, I know somebody who's got a reputation for doing this, like, who asks simple questions and follows them up with really weird questions that catch you off guard. And so the stranger lowered his staff and he stepped out of the shadows 
he introduced himself as Socrates. And Socrates said to Xenophon, look, don't you think it's more important to know how to become a good person than uh, it is to know where to acquire all sorts of material goods? And if you don't know the answer, then maybe we should talk about it and try and figure it out together. Um, and so Xenophon became one of Socrates' best friends for years afterwards and one of his, his most devoted followers. He'd come and listen to him talk every day when he was in Athens, whenever he had the chance. They'd spend all day long talking together about how to learn to become a good person. And then years later, after Socrates died, Xenophon wrote a book called The Memorabilia Socrates, which I said to my little girl, basically, that means everything I remember Socrates saying. And uh, he said, Socrates said, look, um, people believe there are lots of good things and lots of bad things in the world, like loads of different things. Like, but Socrates said they're all wrong. And my little girl's like, what? Like, he said there's only really one good thing and one bad thing. And it's inside you rather than outside of you. And what do you think of that? And so Poppy looked at me and she went, that's not true, Daddy. Like, and she kind of thought about it for a minute. And she said, tell me that story again. <laughs> you know how kids like to hear things over and over. Yeah. And I thought, that's it. That's perfect, right? Because she's like, I'm not accepting this at face value. Yeah, this, this is a weird story. Like, no, like, nah, I don't agree with that. But I want to hear it again. Like, I want to have another chance to think about this. Right. And I thought, now she's doing philosophy. This is exactly what Socrates would want. Mm. Right? She doesn't have to agree with it. It's good that she's, she's able to say, I don't agree with that. But it's got her thinking. She's like, I'm interested in this. I want to have a think about it. You know, what are good things? Is it more important to be a good person than to have good things? Are good things inside us or outside of us? Like, you know, wait, what sort of good things are inside us? Like, she's like, like tell me that again. I want to think about it more. Like, and so she's heard that story many, many times now. And, uh, you know, that's my, that's my favorite story, I think, from the book. And then I started telling her lots of other stories. So even a child, a six-year-old, seven-year-old, whatever, can relate to an anecdote like that. And it gets them questioning things and, and thinking about them. Um, and there's lots of other stories that are in uh, the Socratic dialogues or in Diogenes Laertius that if we massage them, we, we kind of modernize them a bit, then, then, you know, even very young children find them relatable. Well, that's why I love your comic strip idea. And, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip was huge for me. That was my beginning of my philosophical journey. I didn't understand half what I was reading. I thought it was too funny. But it was the youngest I was before I was introduced to some form of critical thinking. And I remember I, I did a paper in critical thinking in university. And I remember sitting in there in those lectures just going, why am I only hearing about this now? Like I needed this at least 10 years ago. If I, my teenage years would have been a lot less miserable if I had had this ability to actually question my own thoughts, question other people's assumptions and so on. And I love, I really, I want to encourage you to, to think more about, you know, that, that kind of that work that you're doing with your daughter. That's a huge gap. I think in society is introduce introduction of philosophical thinking to younger people. Um, because materialism, you know, is filling in that gap um, quite rapidly. And parents, if they're not philosophical, they don't know how to have that conversation anyway. Um, and it sounds like you do or you're discovering it. And uh, I, I love that. I really do. Because with the way the world's going, where we're going, we need the younger generation to be quite philosophical, essentially. They're going to have to question things that have been around for a long time. They're going to have to try and find... Uh, their awards internally rather than externally. 
Look, I, I could probably talk to you for like three more hours, but I, I want to wrap it up there. And um, perhaps we'll have another conversation in the future. Before we before we wrap it up, I mean, aside from your book, which uh, out of the love of my own heart, I'm going to promote quite heavily. Is there anything else around your work that you'd like to point people towards and get involved with? Well, the, I guess the thing that I should mention is I'm part of a multidisciplinary team of people that work as volunteers for a non-profit organization called Modern Stoicism. It's a limited company in the United Kingdom. It's been around for about eight years or something like that. I think it's been on the go for now. It was founded by... Um, Christopher Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University. And there's a bunch of other authors that are involved with it, like Massimo Pellucci and John Sellers, right? Books about Stoicism. And uh, we have a conference every year. So we've got the conferences this year. I'm organised. My turn to organise it again. And uh, we're doing it in Athens. So if anybody fancies a trip to Athens, I'd encourage them to, to look that up. And we also run events every year. So we run the Stoic Week event every year like around about November, October, and we have a course called Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training that we use to gather research data on stoicism. And also, you know, to, for people also who want to write stuff and they're looking for somewhere to publish it, Greg Sadler edits the blog, which is called Stoicism Today, and it has over 500 articles the last time I looked about stoicism from ordinary people from all walks of life from all over the world. So if anyone's kind of thinking of writing something and they, they want to get exposure for it, that gets a lot of traffic. And then everyone's welcome to submit articles to that to that blog. And also when people are looking for information, if anyone asks me, um, are there any articles about stoicism in the military or stoicism in alcoholism or stoicism in autism or whatever, you know, often I'll say, well, for specific applications, it's almost like a database now because there's so many articles in it. The first thing I do is just go and search on the Modern Stoicism website. And usually, lo and behold, I'll find there are like two or three articles that people have written that, that mention whatever topic it is that, that people are interested in finding more out about. So you mentioned the uh, criminal justice system and, and you know, prisons and things. Um, you know, like the, I'm sure there are several articles on there already where people talk about the relationship between Stoicism and, and criminal justice. Um, there's a book about that, incidentally, by, uh, you know, what's it called? The Epictetus Club. I don't know if you've come across that one. It's written by a guy who was a social worker uh, in a prison in the US, and he, had, he ran workshops on stoicism for the inmates. So that's kind of, that's an interesting one to look at. But there are more and more books coming out about stoicism now, and we try and have as many authors as we can, a mixture of popular authors and academics, um, talking at the, the conference. There's usually about 400 people that attend that. So those are some of the things. Modernstoicism.com is the website. If people go there and have a look, they'll see all of the, the stuff that's done. And we're always looking for volunteers to help out with that because, like I say, it's a non-profit project and we've been lucky that we've managed to keep it going so long. Um, we have also some people donate money and help to sponsor it to cover the, uh, some of the costs that are involved and so on. But that's a good place. That's usually where I'd refer people if they want to kind of find out a little bit more about the about the subject. In addition to moan books and stuff, there's tons of resources on there. Excellent. Yeah, I'll uh, yeah, I might write some stuff myself for that and um, definitely point people at it. But yeah, I didn't know about the the not for profit monstrosism, and uh, I I got a sense that you and some of the other names I'm familiar with must be connected somehow. Um, and now it's kind of made clear to me. Uh, Athens, the the birthplace, having your event there is just uh, no, there's something special about that. And Athens is just such a a nice place to go. So it's a good excuse to have a holiday there, if nothing else. 
I think also for a lot of people kind of coming, well, from anywhere in the world, but may, maybe particularly people come from North America that are into Stoicism. And haven't, if they haven't been to Europe that much, like Athens is like a, a magical, to me anyway, it's like a, a magical place. It's like stepping back in time or something. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like there's, it, it's a very different vibe from Toronto. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like a different planet, right? Um, <laughs> So it's, if you're interested in the subject, you feel like you're immediately re-immersed in it. You know, talking about Socrates, we'll be talking about Socrates in a place where maybe he was standing. How weird is that? You know, so we have the conference. Like, you know, for all we know, like that quite easily, the place uh, um, in the American school, a, a classical uh, architecture, our uh, classical archaeology, sorry. Um, you know, Socrates might well have walked right through this spot where we're sitting doing the lecture. Um, or Chrysippus, or Zeno, like, for all we know, uh, you know, so it's, it's useful to kind of like think about the the connection. But I, you know, just more from a philosophical point of view, I just wanted to mention one other little thing. This is we're on the subject, right? One of the most striking techniques in the meditations uh, and in Stoicism in general, particularly the meditations, is the view from above. So Marcus says that Plato said. Um, and Plato doesn't say this, by the way, but Marcus says some he attributes it to Plato, maybe on some lost text or something he got it from. Um, he said, Plato said you should survey the world as if from some high watchtower and look down on the law courts and the, the, the trades, traders' stalls, marriages and funerals and all of human life happening as if from high above. We call that the view from above. And it's a familiar kind of stoic technique. Many people, Pierre Hadot talked a lot about it. Well, if you go to Athens, one of the things that should strike you if you're interested in stoicism is if you climb up the most famous tourist attraction in the, in the whole of Greece, which is the Acropolis mm-hmm. um, in the middle of Athens, and you look down, it's, it, it, you're looking down on the Agora, um, the marketplace where the law courts and public assemblies uh, philosophers were debating people are buying selling things it's exactly what they're describing is happens to the, be the view from the acropolis like and so these guys would have been very familiar with literally physically adopting mm. that perspective like it, it would have been something that they saw so I, anyone that's interested in is going there obviously go up the acropolis look down at the agora and and think about those passages in marcus aurelius like because they'll seem very relevant to you all of a sudden <laughs> yeah, it didn't occur to me when I was there, but now, well, I've actually got photos with that perspective, so it'll have double meaning. And I was so inspired by the the countryside and, and the, the seaside, especially with Athens, that that's where I proposed um, to my now wife. Oh, yeah, that's nice. The nice. Uh, Temple of Poseidon up on the clifftop there. The neon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Beautiful, awesome. beautiful place. Well, Don, thank you uh, so much for your time. And um, for actually, I want to thank you specifically for helping me clarify some of my, um, my misperceptions, I think, around the whole anger issue, which I think is huge. It's huge, obviously, for Marcus Aurelius. And it's, it's a big one for my audience. Uh, many who have come trying to escape a sort of bitter victim mode background and anger is the driving emotional force that they need to work through there. So thank you so much for providing your wisdom around that. Um, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm deeply in appreciation, man. It was a great talk. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. You know, thanks very much for in, in, inviting me on.